This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 28th of August, 2019. The topic is incorporating digital technology into mental health. On the panel we have Amy Hargrave, our lived experience representative, Dr. Shi Lu, clinical psychologist, Dr. Jan Orman, GP services consultant at the Black Dog Institute, and Dr. Jill Newby, senior lecturer and MRFF career development fellow. Chairing this evening is Dr. Carol Newell. I'm Carol Newell and I'll be taking over facilitation for Expert Insights for the rest of this year. Um, this regular monthly event and podcast has grown in popularity over the years because of the dedication and hard work of Dr. Vera Gordon. So before we get started, I'd like to say a really big thank you to her for creating and developing Expert Insights. Um, these are incredibly big shoes to fill. Uh, so if I can get even a fraction of her success, it would be terrific. Okay. So today's panel, um, Amy Hargroves, Dr. Zia Liu, Dr. Jan Orman, and Dr. Jill Newby. So here's my first question. Um, please, panel, we might get each of our panelists to introduce themselves. Um, and can you tell us, kindly tell us your name and title, a little bit about yourself and your current involvement in digital technology and mental health? Oh, All right, I'll start off. Hi, everyone. My name's Amy Hargrave. Um, I'm a volunteer youth presenter for the Black Dog Institute. Um, so I have a lived experience of anxiety and depression, which I suffered from quite a lot when I was in high school. I'm now 25 and on my journey to recovery and learning more about my own mental health. Um, and the way technology fits into that is technology um, and apps and website is one of the ways I use to manage my mental health and keep my headspace in a positive place. Um, I'm Dr. C. Liu and I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a small practice in Newtown um, and I also see clients online across five continents, which is pretty cool. Um, and I um, see clients through um, Doctors Without Borders, MSF. Um, I see their field workers, um, mostly off mission, but sometimes on mission as well. Um, and I host a monthly special interest group of schema therapists who are interested in online therapy and I've spoken in some um, international conferences on this topic as well. So really interested in it. Uh, I think it's a, a really exciting area. So look forward to talking about it today. Um, I'm Jill Newby. I'm a clinical psychologist and senior lecturer at UNSW School of Psychology. Um, and I've worked for a long time also at the Clinical Research Unit for Anxiety and Depression, or CRUFAD, at St Vincent's Hospital. So I've developed a few of their online programs together with the other clinicians, and I direct um, the virtual clinic, which is the research clinic where we test all of those online programs. I'm Jan Orman. I am a GP by profession. In 2013, Black Dog Institute became involved in a project called the E-Mental Health in Practice Project, and I was walking down the corridor because for a long time I've been a facilitator with a professional education program. And the person putting in the tender for that, our part in that project said, Jan, do you want to be involved in this? So I am a GP services consultant for the e-mental health in practice project for Black Dog Institute, which means that I develop and deliver all the online and face-to-face -face training programs to, that are aimed at helping health professionals mental health professionals of all kinds and general practitioners in understanding 
what's available in the way of e-mental health programs and how to use them. So that's really my background. So Jen, what motivated you to explore digital technology? Well, I've always been interested in mental health, hence my job here as a facilitator. I've got a Masters in Cognitive Behavioural Therapy and it was getting to the stage by 2013 that my entire general practice activity was mental health because other people would refer me people who had mental health problems and lo and behold anybody who came in the door whatever they had wrong with them ended up having a mental health problem as you know happens in general practice. Um, so, so I thought when this project came up that this sounded like a very interesting adjunct to mental health care in general practice specifically. But I've learned subsequently that it's also a very helpful adjunct in specific mental health practice for psychologists and allied mental health professionals. And it's also a very helpful thing to think about when you're thinking about prevention and early intervention in people who haven't quite yet met, met DSM criteria for mental illness but are vulnerable to developing mental illness. So there are lots of places where online mental health tools can be very helpful. What about you, Jill? What motivated you to explore digital technology in mental health in uh, your well, research? I, after finishing my PhD, I worked as a clinical psych at St Vincent's at the Anxiety Disorders Clinic, and there I got really interested in it because the Anxiety Disorders Clinic, using This Way Up programs, runs a step care clinic. So the majority of patients will get an internet CBT program before they proceed to face-to-face -face therapy, or they'll get a combined or blended approach. So I got really interested in, in there. But before that, I worked in private practice, and there was always a gap between when people couldn't attend face-to-face -face sessions or when the Medicare sessions or the number of sessions we were allowed could not span the the full calendar year, so I really wanted a tool to be able to space those sessions out, but it wasn't quite ready then. Um, but now I could, in private practice, use this tool together with, with my clinical practice. Fantastic. How about you, Amy? From a consumer's perspective, what made you explore digital technology in terms of maintaining your well-being? Yes, the first way that I was introduced to it was um, I went and saw I, my GP because I was having some recurring symptoms of anxiety and depression. And it was probably quite mild. Um, and I said to him, oh, I'd like to get the 10 referral to see a psychologist. I think I need to go back and do that again. Um, and he suggested instead of doing that, I should check out My Compass, which is um, an online tool that Black Dog has developed um, where you can kind of try and test, try and improve your own mental health um, just through doing different modules which you select on, on my compass. Um, and I was initially quite skeptical of this. I was sort of like, are you just trying to get me to do this instead of going to a psychologist? You're not taking my concerns seriously. But he said, no, just give this a go. I've heard, I've had other clients who have used it and it's been really helpful for them. Um, and also, if you, if you feel like it's not helping you and your symptoms are getting worse over the sort of next few weeks, then definitely come back and see me. So it was really my GP that encouraged me to try and use it. And I did go home and log on. And I actually found it to be really, really helpful um, for addressing some of the sort of mild symptoms of anxiety and depression that I was having at the time. Um, and then I guess from there, I've sort of, that would have been about three or four years ago. And from there, I've sort of returned to my compass and started exploring other sort of tools that I can use um, that are app-based or online 
to manage my mental health. Okay, fantastic. That's exactly what you were talking about, Jan, in terms of using it as a preventative tool. Z, did you say that you had clients across five continents? What? That, so tell us a little bit about that. Is this setup complicated? Um, what is probably the most important issue to consider when exploring something like telehealth? So um, I want to be clear that you, because a, a lot of you are talking about kind of these big online programs. So what I'm referring to is your pretty, you know, stock standard one-on-one face-to-face therapy that's translated into, you know, using an online platform. Um, so I. I think the setup is really simple. Um, it's a matter of deciding on a HIPAA-compliant platform that you're comfortable using. Um, there are a number of them out there that are paid. Any of the free services are often not very not secure. Um, so I use Zoom. Um, you know, and the, in terms of setup, it's just a matter of having that, having a secure location. You know, a secure whether it's office space. Um, if you're you know, have that existing or even just a space in, you know, that is private that you can use, whether in an office or home. Um, so setup-wise, it's really, really simple. So you mentioned HIPAA compliance. For those of us who are not familiar with that, what does that mean? Um, HIPAA compliance is it's a set of guidelines that um, look at, it's quite complicated, actually. It's, um, it looks at sort of data management and control. So it's actually the American version. I think there's, I can't remember the exact Australian term, but there's a guideline that Australian data management systems have to comply with. And it just talks about, you know, it's just security. security. Yeah. Um, so back to Jan, what do you think are some of the barriers you've encountered in terms of getting practitioners to hop online and use the suites, resources, and webinars that are available for practitioners or even just to recommend apps to their clients? Look, I have to tell you that I think the biggest barrier is the practitioners. <laughs> now, that may be something controversial, but back in 2013 when I first started talking to practitioners about online resources, I got a lot of reluctance to engage from the practitioners. There were concerns about confidentiality. There were concerns about efficacy. There were concerns about, about security. And, and what if the patients don't come to me anymore because they get better online? You know, there are all sorts of, of impacts that the practitioners were concerned about which is only natural with the introduction of something new. Um, I think what's made a difference to practitioners' attitudes is understanding that online therapy, whilst maybe standalone self-management for people in the prevention, early intervention category, for those in the mild to moderate common mental health condition category, it is really more what you do while you're waiting for the therapist, what you do in conjunction with your 10 sessions, it augments care. For general practitioners, it's just wonderful because GPs often see their patients waiting for eight, 12 weeks for, pa for appointments with a psychologist and don't know what to do in the meantime. They often, often see patients who can't or won't go to see psychologists or psychiatrists and, but have expectations of them. They don't want to keep on prescribing all the time. So to have something that, that 
makes up for their skills deficit that they can refer patients to and monitor patients while they're going through the programs is just an absolute wonderful thing. Now, that's the thing I have to get across to practitioners, the fact that this is the way you use it. You don't use it instead of face-to-face -face therapy. Whilst there are a few people for whom it's good and you don't need a face-to-face -face therapist, most of the people that we're talking about, it's adjunctive or stopgap for. Mm -hmm. So um, I might throw this at Jill. Okay, In terms of, you said one of the concerns is efficacy from practitioners. Um, what is the state of research for online programs in mental health? Are they only suitable for mild to moderate or do they cut across severity? When, when you're talking about online programs, yeah. I suppose I'll refer to anxiety and depression, and depression, which, which are, are the main, main ones. Yeah, they're the main conditions and the majority of research has been done on the online CBT programs for those conditions. And our research and research from around the world shows that those programs are helpful for all across the spectrum, from mild to severe. Um, and one of the perceptions in, in practice or the concerns we get from clinicians that they might not work for more moderate to severe um, clients or people who are experiencing that level of severity of symptoms. But our research shows that they actually improve more. I suppose that's part of when you're more severe at the start, then you have further to improve um, with a range of different things like regression to the mean, but also there's further to improve in terms of your symptoms. Um, so yeah, it, it can work from mild to severe. But what we do find, at least with the online CBT programs, is people who have more severe symptoms are more likely to drop out. So engagement's really critical and supervising and supporting a person through a program or combining it with face-to-face -face and blending the therapy um, and the follow-up is really important. So one concern with the online program is whether findings from randomised control trials translate to the real world. So how do the outcomes compare from a university trial to say... Yeah, so routine clinical care. So the research trials that we've done at CRUFAD, at St Vincent's and, and other research um, teams from different countries have shown that the outcomes from the clinical trials do translate into routine care. The difference is adherence. So in clinical trials, we get really good completion rates. Um, when those programs are used in routine clinical care, then fewer people complete the programs. But there is an important distinction. So clinicians in routine care in the community in Australia tend to get lower completion rates. Um, but our specialist clinicians at CRUFAG can get just the same retention rates as we do in clinical trials. So I think there's a, there's a role of experience in using these programs to help people um, maintain their way through the programs. But for people who complete, they do just as well. The outcomes are exactly the same. Can I ask a question? In the trials of routine clinical care, yep. um, with, not with the clinicians inside the, the This Way Up clinic, but outside, are there any uh, instructions given about how these clinicians should introduce and follow up the programs? Is, there, is engagement related to clinician enthusiasm or follow-up? Yeah, at, in this way we have some scripts and some examples of how you might follow up a participant or a patient through those programs. Um, but we need to do more in terms of training to help mm -hmm. clinicians know exactly what to do and when to do it, especially if someone um, is having difficulty engaging through the program. 
We might switch um, tack now and go back to Amy here. Amy, what are some of the examples of ways that you've used technology to manage your mental health? Um, as I said earlier, the My Compass um, platform was something that I used early on. Um, I also use Meditate. I try and use quite a few meditation apps um, to kind of practice mindfulness and bring myself down from feeling anxious. So I've used Headspace. Um, I've also found another app which is called Breath, which um, you can log on and before you start the meditation or the mindfulness or breathing exercises, it gets you to kind of rate and answer a few questions about how your physical body's feeling and how your mind's feeling. And so then it sort of tracks it and you can look back and I find that really interesting to be able to look back and say, oh, last week on Wednesday, wasn't feeling that great. After the meditation felt a little bit better or just to see those sort of patterns. Um, and I think seeing that change also encourages you to want to do it more because you're like, oh, I, actually, that this is a difference because I think sometimes it's really subtle when you're doing something like breathing exercises. Um, so I've used those. Meditation and, and my compass would be two that I've focused on quite a lot. Um, and I'm trying to think of any others that I've found. Have there been any particular modules in my compass that will be you, that have been useful for you? Yeah, um, definitely. I think it was one about challenging challenging your thoughts um, and a specific part of that module that there was a lot of different aspects to it but one bit that really stuck in my mind was that it got it asked the it asked you to classify your thoughts as whether they were black and white thinking or catastrophizing um, and I I prior to using my compass done quite a few face-to-face -face sessions with psychologists um, when I was a bit younger and they'd always told, explained to me this concept of challenging your thoughts and stopping and thinking. Um, and, but it never really clicked until I kind of saw it in that text-based, web-based form. It suddenly really crystallised for me. Um, and I think, um, so that, it was interesting because as I said earlier, before I started using my compass, I was quite skeptical of whether um, it was going to be as impactful as a face-to-face -face session, but I really think that it was. So, yeah. If you're not familiar with my compass, my compass has 14 separate modules about specific issues like sleep or, or whatever your symptom du jour happens to be, you can go in and go straight to that module. Now that's very different from the other Australian online programs which are all linear in their, their uh, structure. So you go in at the beginning, learn about the cognitive um, behavioural therapy theory, the theory behind it, and so on down the track. So this is the value of knowing about My Compass. If someone's really concerned about a specific symptom, they can jump onto My Compass and deal with that straight away. And then maybe want to, will want to go back to one of the linear programs to get a bit more background on, on things, but maybe not. Yeah, and I think um, I because I'd already had quite a lot of face-to-face -face sessions, maybe I already had kind of a lot of that background and I really enjoy being able to go in and choose what did I want to focus on. It made me sort of feel like I was choosing something to kind of add to my arsenal of things that I used to mm. kind of... Um, so it provided you with a toolbox yeah, exactly. so, and revision yeah. for what you already needed. Yeah, so mm. And it sounded yeah. like it provided you with a little bit more control in yeah, terms exactly. of what you were interested yeah. in. Definitely, yeah. definitely. So what do you think is the difference there in... So you said you, you'd heard about these concepts about yeah. thought challenging, mm. testing your thoughts, um, changing the way that you think to feel better versus reading it and using that in my compass. What's the difference there do you think that makes... Um, I think more useful. I think just for me, the way 
maybe it's to do with my sort of learning style or I just learned, I felt like it clicked better when I saw it as, as written down and I also had to sort of write out my, you could write out your thoughts into a text box and then on the next page you go back and sort of categorise them and I think it was that sort of act for me really clicked. It really so clicked. Really yeah, rather than doing it verbally. Yeah. Had you ever had the experience of a therapist giving you homework sheets and doing it uh, in writing that way? I hadn't, I, I, I kind of remember that when I was a bit younger, but I probably never did it or really engaged with it at all. So that's probably another factor is that at this point I was motivated. I was doing it myself and writing it down myself. Could be so. a case of personal readiness yeah, exactly. working for, for my company yeah. too, couldn't And it? maybe yeah. also the app, the user-friendliness of the app actually meant to actually consolidate your learning yeah, in a different yeah, way. Yeah, exactly, and it stores it so you can kind of go back and look at it, look at it as well. Yeah. yeah. So it sounded like instead of waiting for the next session with your psychologist to go through your black and white thinking, it was a little bit more dynamic. Like yeah, were... yeah, exactly, exactly. Fantastic. Um, so Jan, speaking about apps, what are your top apps? Are there any that you recommend um, for mental health? Look, we could share with the audience. For me, the app that every person working in health needs to know about is Beyond Blue's Beyond Now app which is a suicide safety planning app. And unlike, I think, the apps that Carol's trying to get me to talk about, it, it is... It is I don't an have an agenda. It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> it's an app that's designed to be used collaboratively with your patients or clients rather than something that the person goes away and does themselves. So within a session that you might be making a a safety plan with a patient, instead of doing it on paper for them to lose or throw in the bin or, or have their mother find, um, you're doing it on their phone, they, on their phone, and it's a very comprehensive safety plan and it is just wonderful. I would recommend that you download it to your phone now and have a play with it um, because it's you'll see that if you're doing safety planning already, this is a great way to do safety planning and it has the advantage. You do it on the patient's phone with them and the patient has done the writing, they own it and it's on their phone. They've got it in their pocket all the time. Who hasn't got their phone in their pocket, if not in their hand, the 24 hours a day. So, so it's very convenient to have your suicide plan on your phone. Okay, so that, that aside, the, my favourite apps are Smiling Mind, which I'm sure everybody knows about. It's, again, developed with Beyond Blue Money for, to teach people mindfulness and runs from children up to adults in the program, so it's very good from that point of view, and gives you some idea of how well you were before you started the exercise and after you finished the exercise, as Amy's talking about. I also like an app called Virtual Hope Box that I hope I won't get into trouble for mentioning because it's not Australian. It comes from the, the American Department of Veterans Affairs and was originally designed for people with PTSD. And it's got some wonderful distraction um, techniques on it. My favourite is that you select photos from your, your phone's photo bank, put them into the app, and when you click on the photo puzzle link, it turns it into a puzzle for you. So you can spend a minute or two in your distressed state to fiddling with the photo until it comes back to your happy memory and then you've got a happy memory at the end of it. You can see its value as a distraction technique. So, so that's virtual hope box. Um, someone suggested that um, we all should have 
uh, down dog on our phones. Guess what that's about? That's a yoga app. It's American too. It, it is available in a free version and a paid version, but the paid version hasn't got very, very many more attributes than the free version. So that's something, if you've got a patient or client who's into physical activity and likes yoga, then down dog's not a bad thing for them to have on, on their phone. There's also breathe and worry time. You know where I suggest you go if you're interested in apps? Two things, suggestions I've got to make. The Reach Out website um, has a page on it that has app recommendations that have made, been made by mental health professionals working for Reach Out. And that their recommendations include breathe and, and um, worry time, which are their apps anyway. So, so that's a good place to go. And the other thing that I suggest you do if you're really interested in apps, we've done two webinars about apps this year. One was early in the year where, where Mark Larson and a couple of other people joined me on a panel to talk about what apps are good out there and how to use them and how to, how to assess them. And that was, that was a webinar that we did in January and it's, it's available on demand on the Black Dog website. And the second one was done just recently by Queensland University of Technology and it's a more technical um, webinar that is um, designed to tell you how to assess apps thoroughly if you want to do it yourself and you're using them in clinical practice based on the MAPS assessment tool that they've developed. So there are two things that I can recommend. You can find them both on the MPRAC page, E-M-P, no, E-M-H-P-R-A-C, the MPRAC page of the Black Dog Institute website. So. I think the second webinar in terms of being able to evaluate apps is really helpful for practitioners because there's so much out there you don't want to recommend the wrong thing. Um, so we've been talking about mobile apps and online programs and I wanted to ask you, Jill, what's the evidence around how do they compare in terms of online programs against something like mobile apps? Is it the efficacy is about the same or what's the state of the there's research? There's not a whole lot of research that has compared those two modalities, so comparing the exact same program in an app version versus an online version. The meta-analyses seem to show that the online CBT programs do the best, so they get the largest effects. Um, I think the mobile apps, the evidence for that is very variable, and part of the reason for that is there's such wide variability in what's in an app, what it says it does versus what it actually does, and what type of techniques are taught within that app. So the effects range between small to moderate, um, whereas online programs, they tend to get large effects. So there is a little bit of a difference, but if it's a really high quality app that does what it says it does, so if it says it's an online CBT program and it is actually a CBT program, then you'd get larger effects. Lots and lots of apps aren't CBT programs. They're just symptom management apps. Uh, they might help you manage your, your anxiety or help you manage your sleep issues. Or, uh, so, and in fact, that's what apps do best. They manage a narrow range of symptomatology. The, the, the apps that are based on existing CBT programs, like the This Way Up apps, um, do their job well. But the problem with, with apps that try and be CBT programs is, and haven't been online programs before that is that on the whole they haven't been properly tested and they may well have been developed by what one of my colleagues calls bedroom developers who know about 
IT but don't necessarily know about mental health. So, so you have to be aware of those. Um, so I would stick with, this is just my personal view, apps that help manage symptoms and online CBT programs or the apps that are derived from those online CBT programs. Fantastic. So we've spoken a little bit about the benefits of mental health apps and online programs. I might swing back to Z now in terms of what are some of the benefits of telehealth for clients? So for clients, I think um, it's really enormous. Um, I initially got into doing online therapy because um, clients, especially those who are stabilizing, were starting to live life. Like they were moving interstate to other countries for work. Um, and especially during that transition phase, it's often very difficult. And for a lot of them going to small country towns, um, it's just very difficult to find the, the adequate appropriate support for them, especially when they have trust issues, if there's complex trauma or if there are specific needs. So it came out of a, a you know really the need. I had to kind of get comfortable with seeing clients online and, and work out how I could do that, um, you know, practically. Um, and, um, and so I really was able to provide that continuity of care for clients. I was able to see them through really immediate difficulties that they were having and, you know, really support them through um, dealing with you know, finding a new home and um, and all these kind of very real things. Um, you know, one client that um, I um, present on when I talk about online therapy, you know, she has um, severe complex trauma, childhood, physical and sexual abuse, um, and I and was very estranged from her family. And over the course of us working together, I became her person that knew her, who carried her story. Um, and when she moved to another state um, and, you know, had met a new partner and, you know, I was concerned, is this new partner going to be supportive? Like, is, is he really caring? Um, and so, yeah, being able to provide that continuity of care with someone that she really trusts, that she didn't have to tell her story again, was really, really essential. Um, and so I see it as like you know, it allows clients to live their life and to, you know, not be stuck in the physical proximity yeah. with, because of their mental health. And also, psychologists can now get Medicare rebates, right? In particular, rural and remote areas. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's the it's the four to seven, and yeah. So it's the, not all rural communities are considered remote. So you, there's a website that you can kind of type in and um, and and look at where they are. Um, so absolutely, you can get the ten mental health care. Isn't plans there sessions. a requirement for the telepsychology that you see them at least once? in those 10 sessions face-to-face. They've taken that away, taken have they? That out. Yeah, there was a bit of an outcry, which makes sense, because if you're, if you're it's a huge working cost. with someone in a rural yeah. area, they can't huge come to see you face-to-face. Face. I mean, you know, if it's possible, of course, it's, that's a great thing. But I see clients overseas, as I said, like across five continents. They're not going to... Um, and a lot of them are not... Like, it's not covered by ins their insurance policies. It's not covered by kind of any, you know, um, like public health systems um, so yeah and they also clients can actually look for something specific like I offer couples counseling for LGBT clients specifically using schema therapy I don't think there's many in the world I think there are a few in New York that offers that and then you know from in my knowledge that, that many so I think you know you can also as a client really target what you want and be a very informed consumer and look internationally for what you need um, I have colleagues who um, has who 
I, as I said, I, I chair this group of um, online scheme therapists, and I have a colleague in Greece who sees clients who are Greek expats all, all over the world who really want someone who have that com, um, that cultural understanding and be able to speak in their own language. So you know, this, these online platforms, the technology is there. It's pretty stable. Um, although saying that today, I did have some issues with for a supervision session. I had three set client sessions, which were fine. Then one supervision session that was really unstable. So you know, so there are there are tricky issues that you have to manage and um, and account for. But you know, the technology is there for us to really be able to do this um, you know do this work online very well. Can I ask if there's any disadvantage in telepsychology? Sure. Um, yes, of course. Um, there's a lot of things that I can't do online um, or not do easily and have to find ways to adapt. Like I do, um, you know, I use a lot of chairs in my sessions. It's tricky. I, you know, I, I, you know, in face-to-face -face sessions, I would kind of use chairs to kind of talk about, you know, parts of the person or, or talking about grief work. It's tricky to invite clients to bring chairs in and then kind of direct them to move things around. So you have to adapt it. You know, you have to f creatively and confidently find alternatives for it. Um, again, I see these disadvantages as potentials because... They're really just challenges, aren't yeah. they? So, yeah. So, you know, another one is... Um, seeing clients in their natural habitat, which is really interesting. I told Carol the story earlier when we were preparing. Um, I had a client who was seeing me in their, in their holiday home, and it was a hot summer's day, and you know, we were talking, and without skipping a beat, the client just says, I'm going to grab a beer, and walks off before I had a chance to say anything and stop her. And you know, in the context of this case, like, we actually were able to identify as you know, there was some like it actually speaks to a broader issue. Um, so it is a challenge that, you know, she's got this open beer sitting right there looking at it. Um, or, you know, sometimes clients, um, I've had colleagues who say like their clients will smoke in the session. Like, is it, it, I don't know, like it depends on the therapist, what they're comfortable with. Um, but I tend to use all that information as part of the therapeutic work. Internet disruption is a big one. I would say that's probably the, the trickiest thing and managing risk. So, Zoo, it sounds a little bit like the opposite because in terms of pursuing telehealth, we're really scared of losing a lot of context and nuances. But then you get a lot of nuances just by watching your client in their yeah. natural habitat. You get different nuances. You get to meet their pets and you get to see them um, at their home where they can actually talk about what resources they have to help them ground themselves when they get really triggered. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, a client who she you know, gets panic attacks in the middle of the night and then go out to a porch and puts her feet on the ground. And so we could do that. I can actually see her do that and guide her through that. So yeah, so you get different contexts. And so I think it's really important to know how to use them. Mm -hmm. So are there any professional advantages for you in terms of telehealth? Heaps. It's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely something, you know, I definitely feel like I benefit from a lot of it. Um, so I get a lot of variety in my work. I, you know, on a given day, I speak to clients from all over the world. It's really, that's really cool. Um, and on a, on a um, selfish level, I feel like it, um, it allows me to be mobile myself. Um, so prior to coming back to Australia, um, you know, earlier this year, I was living in Spain a year ago and then in New York 
two years before that. And I was able to maintain client bases across the world. Um, you know, once I was stable and sturdy and I was able to have a private space and a strong internet connection, then I could actually continue to, to do the work. So I see this as also really, um, you know, like it, it allows us to continue to do this work that's really meaningful, um, you know, as we, you know, grow and may not want to keep living in the same city, um, or we may want to, you know, live part time in the, you know, in the bush or in the city. Like, we give us a lot more mobility as well for clinicians. It's a brave new world of therapy, telling psychology, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But people are doing it. That's the mm. thing. There's so many people out there offering telehealth and it's a real essential thing. Your clients really want it. So I think as clinicians, we just really need to get comfortable and understand what it is and get trained because we owe it to our clients to be able to provide this as skilled clinicians who offer, offer evidence-based practice. Mm. It's actually the affordability issue that worries me rather than uh, the, uh, any problems with the mode itself. Yeah. yeah, affordability is an interesting thing. I know someone, a colleague who's in South Africa, who offers rates that are um, appropriate to the country. Okay. So he offers different rates based on what's appropriate for the country. So mm -hmm. someone who lives, um, who is in a developing country, has a much lower rate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, That's I think really it's interesting. Mm, right. Uh, so. I'm drawing Amy back into the conversation. We've talked about advantages of telehealth for our practitioners. What are some of the benefits for the consumer in terms of going online for mental health? Um, I think, think for me at the time, it definitely cost. Like the, the my compass and the meditation apps that I've been using were, were free. Um, and at the time, obviously going to see a psychologist, even if you get your 10 sessions, still out of pocket, probably about $100 or close to. So is that affordability of being able to use use those apps and get access to help straight away? So also, yeah, being not having to wait for your appointment a couple of weeks or, or months. Um, and, you know, as, as they were saying, it's being able to live your life and just, I'm not going to, you know, I don't need to leave work early to go and see my psychologist. I could just do this at home, log on and like do a couple of modules from my compass. Um, so being able to sort of, keep your life, keep the flow of your life going without, without stopping. Um, and not so much for me, but I can imagine for, for other people and a couple of my friends who have used online, online platforms and also tele, telehealth, it's that if you have that anxiety of going to see someone face to face, being able to be a little bit more, um, just have a little bit more of a defence through, through a computer, I know that can encourage people to seek out help when they maybe wouldn't have in the first place. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that's actually what the research shows that for, especially for, um, you know, for um, diagnosis where there's, there's a, a level of shame based to it, like with eating disorders and social anxiety, often clients find that to be a more of an even ground, like you know, the online space, it's not your space, it's not my space, it's a bit more neutral yeah. and, and it feels like a really kind of good, um, I guess less frightening entry, entry point. Mm. Yeah. The other thing I've seen happen is that those people who are psycho-reluctant, if you like, who, who don't want to see any, anybody whose title starts with psych, um, often well, they'll go online and see what it's all about and in seeing that they'll realise that it's really not as confronting as they thought because they had imaginings of lying on a couch and someone reading their mind or that sort of thing and that will lead them into face-to-face -face care too, which is a, a great thing. We have any questions from the audience? 
Um, so you were, so you were saying about using um, VIP for therapy. So when you're clo when you're online and you were saying about nuanced um, nuances, um, how close to you is the camera? Because presumably they can only see. Um, when I did it myself, you could only sort of see the top sort of shoulder. So I noticed that you use your hands a lot when you're talking and explaining something. So how does that come across in therapy? And also, how does it come across from the other, from the client's perspective of what you can see? Yeah, you're you're right. Like in online, it's um it's funny that like you're really framed, right? Like so when I, um when I present on this topic, I talk about you know setting the stage of online therapy. You have to consider all those elements of lighting, staging, how you look, how the clients look, all of that. Um, it's, I think, um, um, how clients feel about sort of seeing me in this kind of close up, it really varies. Um, I think there's often initial some initial discomfort or... Do you, of, do you ever the ask the client if you're too close or too far away? Is, is that... Yeah. Uh, I haven't, but maybe I should, yeah. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it is really intimate, though, because you're kind of staring at each other closely, like just like this, for, for 15, 16 minutes. So it is quite an interesting, um, you know, space. I was actually, see, wondering about your experience in working with couples, which I have done using Zoom, and wondering about your thoughts about how to manage the arrangement of the couple and how to harness the interactions that actually go on within the consultation. Yeah, couples online is really tricky because of just the limitations of the camera. Um, I try to ask them to set it back so I can see them a little bit more. Um, and it, it is tricky. It's, um, yeah, on, like couples work on online is probably one of the harder because, harder ones because I, when I see couples face to face, I you know I again use a lot of um, like chairs and things in the room to help them kind of understand which mode they're in. Um, and online, I'm you know it's a work in progress of kind of working out best ways to do it. But I use a lot of kind of um, representations of things. I'll talk about like this is that that little part of you that you know that you feel like you have to hide from your your partner, and then you have this thing that blocks you. And then so we I kind of use objects to, yeah, props to kind of explain how that's happening and then I can kind of get them to move around as well. But it is, yeah, it's, a, it's harder to um, direct people to move around. Yeah. When there's more people in, in the room, it's much harder. Yeah. But it's, it's working within the limitations of it. Bit of a brave new world. Um, I might throw this at Jill. So are there people who, we've talked about online therapy and apps, um, and then maybe Jane can jump in on this as well. Um, do you think there are individuals who are not suited to digital technology who you would not recommend using digital technology? Start with Jill first. Um, in terms of the evidence and the research, I'd say people who are suicidal. Um, it's not well. There's not been a whole lot of research, I should say, on people who are suicidal accessing digital mental health services, but I they're still accessing digital health services. They're just not typically included in the clinical trials. Um, people who can't read 
Um, not for the apps that teach, a, say, a mindfulness exercise or another strategy like worry time. Um, you don't need to be able to read to do that, but a lot of the other programs that you need a level of literacy to be able to read. Um, it's quite a disaster if you refer someone to a program like that yeah. without checking to make sure they've got adequate literacy levels um, yeah. first up. Because it will just raise the anxiety mm. and will, mm. will backfire, really. Um, and then if, they, if they're not willing or don't want to do it, they want to see someone face-to-face, -face, then it's not appropriate. But I wouldn't say there's any other demographics or severity levels or other um, considerations that you need to take into account. It tends to work across the board. So digital literacy, how much they use computers and digital devices, does it make a difference? No, the research tends to show that they do just as well. Yeah, so originally we, we would have thought that older adults might not be able to engage as well and learn as well from these programs, that they do, do just as well and sometimes even better. And there's some evidence that having someone to help you do it doesn't mm. interfere with the efficacy of the program. That applies both to digital literacy and literacy and non-English speaking backgrounds. So if you've got wow. someone interpreting mm -hmm. for you, the programs are still effective. And what we've found actually recently in some of the trials that we've been doing, when I've been working with some of our participants is that often parents will work through a program together. They're in the trial, but they'll work through it with their um, adolescent um, daughter or son, or they'll work through it with their partner. So they all, everyone knows what they're learning, and they're all practicing the skills together. It's a really nice way of helping um, each person help each other, and also helping um, you know the adolescent or the young person learn the techniques that might be able to help them overcome their anxiety. I've had it work the other way too. I've referred an adolescent for support with anxiety, and found that their parent or parents have gotten involved in. And of course, we all know that anxiety runs in families, so um, it's been beneficial for everybody. So there's a knock-on effect for mm. the family as well to learn these strategies. Um, Amy, I've uh, just thrown this to you. You know, what are some of the major barriers, do you think, in terms of stopping people from trying digital technology from your end in terms of maintaining mental health? Um, I think, uh, I think as, I, as I mentioned earlier, it's just maybe that initial, initial scepticism of, of, you know, that perception of it being less impactful because it'll be online and you're not actually seeing someone face to face. I think maybe, I think that might be an initial barrier. Um, but um, as, as Jan was saying, for me, having my um, GP be really encouraging about that and not, and sort of, you know, pushing me on that a little bit was really helpful for me to take that first step to actually try it. Um, I think also it's for people who are lacking some motivation maybe to do something about their mental health it's very easy as you're online doing something to walk out or leave or just go and do something else or get distracted at any minute. Whereas if you're in a face-to-face -face session, you're at least kind of stuck there for an hour or yeah, even on telehealth. Yeah, yeah, but if you feel that way, you don't come back again, do exactly, you? Exactly, exactly. So I think maybe that that's a, a couple of a couple of issues that there might be with it. But I think a lot, there's a lot of benefits that also make it, make it much easier to do and make it much more likely that people might go and use an online platform as opposed to doing face-to-face, -face, so. There are lots of barriers, but I also think there are lots of ways that practitioners can help overcome those barriers by being knowledgeable, by being enthusiastic, by showing people what the website looks like before they leave their room and how to get onto it or, or 
bringing up the website on their phone so they've got a record of it and they will not have difficulty finding it the next time they go to look at it. You know, lots of things that you can do by making follow-up appointments to check and make sure that they're doing it and are engaged with it. Lots of things that practitioners can do to add to the efficacy of the program. Um, do you find that um, males versus females are one gender's more likely to use an app or an online program or complete a, mod a program or module for in the CBT? In our research, we tend to get more females than males, and that's in part because anxiety and depression um, are more common in females than males. We don't tend to get any difference in outcomes. Um, or engagement with males and females. We tend to get the age difference, so older adults tend to complete more and do a little bit better. Um, we found one interesting thing in a trial that my PhD student is doing. She's doing an intensive program, so treating panic disorder and agoraphobia within a week, sort of like a boot camp for anxiety, and she found a lot more males signed up to that. So we had 50-50 split, whereas normally it's 70-30. So there's some interesting differences in the way that different types of online programs could reach males versus females. And I'm also interested if um, with the rebates, with the um, telepsychology, so if in Australia if you were seeing a, a client and you saw them three or four times and they were on holiday and they still needed to have that contact, can they claim that back? Not if they're no. overseas. And if they're within Australia, though, and it's a tele... Provided they're in a rural area in the range, yeah. in the Monash scale, yeah. four to seven. They have to come from the... They have to live in, in a rural area. Seven. So it doesn't work for holidays. That's the answer. No. Mm. But they can do a, you know, like My Compass or um, another app or This Way Up or Mindspot in between. That could be so their they holiday homework. <laughs> no, 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 just, you know, from personal experience with um, moving away for work and not wanting to have to repeat your history and all of those things and when you have a trusting um, relationship with your therapist, um, that that sort of creates a roadblock to not having therapy because you can't yeah. claim Yeah, it it's back. really unfortunate mm. that it's, yeah. it's specifically for those... Um, I mean, it's great that it's available now for those rural and remote areas, but it would be great if it was... Mind you, if you're prepared to pay for it without a Medicare rebate, you can have it anywhere. No, it's I, just... that I understood. Yeah. That. Yeah. And psychiatrists, I think... I might be wrong. Someone um, correct me if I am wrong, but... Psychiatrists, you can get rebate for telehealth many sessions throughout the year. Yeah, so there's not the same restriction as there is for telepsychology. Telepsychology's right. only just come in last year. So that's, do they have to be in the rural remote yes. area? Yes, the uh, geographical restrictions so still exist as I understand it. Oh, I thought it was more broad than that, but the session numbers is longer. Mm. Right. Yeah. So much of this is about giving clients freedom, isn't it? The freedom to live their lives and keep growing and having something, a range of services available to, for them to do that. Thanks for the talk so far. Very interesting. Um, I'm curious about two things because we've talked sort of about online in that psychoeducation and sort of passive active therapy way of apps. And I'm curious about peer-to-peer -peer communities and online communities and also the use of AR or VR... Um, in therapy as well. Um, I can speak to, to, to everyone. Anyone. I can speak to yeah. AR and VR, but not necessarily online communities. 
Jen, I think you can speak to online. Yeah. Uh, Did you want to I, Well, all I can say about online communities um, for patients is that you have to be really careful with them to make sure they're adequately moderated. Um, the best one I know of is Hello Sunday Morning, which uh, you might all be familiar with. It's You know what it's about just from the name, don't you? It's about changing your relationship with alcohol um, so, so that you get your Sunday mornings back. Um, but it's an online community where, which is very highly moderated, which um, ha, in which people just encourage one another to meet their goals, their stated goals in terms of their relationship with alcohol. Hello Sunday Morning is actually an American app, but any Australian can do it for nothing because it's subsidised by the federal government for Australian users. So, so people go on, get onto it and they might notice that there's some Americanisms and so forth because there are people out there in the community from all over. But, but it's really worth knowing about if you're looking to change your relationship with alcohol. So that's an example of a very, very good online community. Um, we have an online community, don't we? But it's for health practitioners, not, not for patients. Well, you can speak to that still because part of this is about digital technology mm -hmm. for mental health and mm -hmm. mental health practitioners. So part of the IMPRACT project was to set up an online community of practice for GPs and allied mental health professionals and psychologists, etc., etc., who wanted to talk to each other in an interdisciplinary way online. So Carol and I and several others are working to get that up and running with some engaging and interesting content. We're putting up case discussions and, and you know, posting questions and queries we might have about difficulties that we're having in practice. So you're all invited. If you are a practitioner with an APRA number, you're all invited to join that community. It is moderated, but we do expect practitioners to be, be careful in their their what they say in the community anyway. Um, and it's just another example of the way you can use online communities. The other thing, the other uh, thing that comes close to an online community is for adolescents now. Is it the eHeadspace site? I think runs something that comes close to a community as well, but that's very heavily moderated too. And Jill, what about VR and AR? Um, so my research team has been doing a bit of work in VR. So we've been using virtual reality exposure therapy to treat fears and phobias. And what we've been doing is delivering that online through really low cost accessible versions. So taking um, images and videos of real life situations and grading them in an exposure therapy paradigm, I suppose, and being able to view them in low cost headsets that cost about five bucks. Um, so that's a really cool use of and combination of online with VR technology. Um, we've also started to do a little bit of work in AR, but it's really only at the moment for treating fears and phobias. I think there's a long way to go. There's real great potential in using augmented reality and virtual reality for relaxation and mindfulness exercises. It's not quite being capitalised on yet, but it's, it's coming. Okay, so I'm a total dummy here. Yeah. What's the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality? Can we clarify for the audience? So the IT people here would be um, horrified at the way I explain this. Someone else might be better at explaining it. But virtual reality, you will put a headset on and view a virtual world within that headset. Augmented reality, um, you might see something on your phone. Um, so you're in reality, um, but you might be able to see something through, yeah, through your phone. So... Um, 
someone else might know it better. Like Pokemon Go. Oh, Pokemon Go. (laughs) Yeah, so that's an example of augmented reality where you can see those visual images through your phone or through the app um, that that are not real. So it combines... Images with, with reality. what is reality yeah, in so front of you. That's a much better explanation. I'm curious about severity. Um, sort of touched on before Amy's experience, that mild to moderate sort of end, and you found a lot of help, and you do it at your own time, you find your own motivation, which makes a lot of sense and it's very relatable. I'm curious, I guess, doctor as a GP, about um, what sort of patient you'd be sitting in front of, you know, what's contraindicated, what sort of is an indication that severity but well, this is kind of perhaps I should be thinking face to face or you know what I'm just kind of curious around what your thoughts are if there's some maybe guidelines the guidelines tend to say only mild to moderate um, thinking about it um, in more detail Jill said something about not referring someone who's suicidal to an online program um, and that, I guess, goes without saying when they're actively suicidal. I might be careful with someone with schizophrenia who was actively psychotic or someone with bipolar disorder um, and also with anyone for whom the referral to online therapy or digital options might be interpreted as um, uh, the only thing that's available, uh, never ever imply that there isn't something else out there for them or that they can do this and if they and only get to something else if they fail that you know there's all sorts of odd interpretations of things so this is why maybe someone who's psychotic whether it be schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or drug-induced psychosis or whatever it might be a bit dangerous to refer them to a digital resource first of all so with great care at the severe end I think having said that There's lots of evidence that people with schizophrenia benefit from CBT once they're stabilised and there's no reason why um, guided CBT couldn't help them um, when they're in a stable state to learn some coping skills, for example. I'd say a wait list should be contraindicated. So people shouldn't be going on a wait list because they they can deteriorate. Um, So actually recommending something versus nothing is, is much better. Um, in terms of what we know for the outcomes with people who are waiting for treatment. Um, In terms, I would agree exactly with what you said, Jan, about where an online program might be contraindicated. And if you arrange a follow-up a week or even a few days down the track or two weeks down the track, then you can see whether that program has been helpful and whether they've been able to log on and engage. And if they haven't, then refer to a different... I think there's a misunderstanding with some practitioners that you can just refer to a digital resource and leave it at that. I don't think you can do that. I think as a health practitioner, you've got a responsibility. So in referring to a digital resource, you need to make an appointment to get them to come back and see how they're going with it. I think that needs to be an understood part of the uh, treatment regime. All right. So, um, Jill, how, how would we incorporate? Let's suppose we have a client that would be perfect for this way up um, because of some indication that they would benefit from it while still seeing us at the same time. So how, how would we combine two? What are the steps? What are the processes? Because perhaps that first step is the most overwhelming part. 
For the clinician? For the clinician to attempt If this. they're using This Way Up programs, mm -hmm. then they, clinicians can register for free with This Way Up. And all you need to do is decide which program you want to recommend to the client, write a quick script, so write a few details, their email. That will send an email to the client, which will link them to you, and then they can register and start the process. And they can choose which program they do, but you also give them a recommendation. So you might say the depression program is most, most suitable for you. They get the email saying your, your clinician, Carol, has suggested the depression program, and then they log back into This Way Up and sign on. Okay, so I haven't seen the depression program, so how would I know which is suitable? Because I have a concept of CBT, but I haven't seen the suite itself. I haven't gone in as a client. So can we actually have a preview of the suites? Yeah, so we've got the demo codes. And if you're ever wanting to use the program or demo those programs, you can contact This Way Up, and they will give you the demo codes for that particular month. I, I think I gave you some of the passcodes for the next few months, so then anyone in the audience can actually look at them, take a look around the website and look at the content so you know it's, it's trustworthy. And then if you've prescribed a program to your patient, you can actually read through what they're reading as well. And if you're thinking about the internal content of the other Australian programs, with the exception of MindSpot, that's different, then you can just register as though you were a user yourself and carry on with looking at the content of the programs. So particularly with My Compass, you can just register. If you don't feel like giving your actual email address because you don't want to get any emails from My Compass, go to Gmail and get a special one for My Compass. Um, it's, it's, we don't collect statistics from in that way, so there's no problem with mucking up our results or anything. You can just register and do the program yourself. And I often say to general practitioners who feel unskilled as far as um, CBT strategies are concerned, get onto one of the programs and actually learn them as a, a client or patient would. Um, and that way you'll be fit to actually uh, guide people through the programs, but also maybe even to teach things like structured problem solving yourself. So I think that's a great idea to be familiar with the programs mm -hmm. and then you know that they're trustworthy and you know they're mm -hmm. teaching sensible, mm -hmm. sensible skills and sensible information. Mm -hmm. But in answer to that question, Carol, about incorporating it, if you know what each lesson in a program is going to present to a patient, you can make an appointment after they're due to be finished that lesson and revise the content of the lesson. Uh, and the other way in which it's quite useful to incorporate it into therapy is that if you've got somebody with really complex needs, and like many of the eating disorders patients that I have seen in the past, and you can't address all their needs in the few sessions that, the, that are available to you, you can use one of these programs to address some of the issues while you address the more complex issues in the face-to-face -face environment. And that works quite well too. So I've also used it as relapse prevention. So seeing a, face, seeing a person face-to-face -face for um, their therapy to target a particular problem, and they might have residual symptoms at the end of that treatment program and that we know increases the risk of relapse. And then I've recommended or prescribed a program uh, for them to do at home on their own with the option of coming back if they do relapse. But it's actually really helpful in, in addressing some of those residual symptoms that you wouldn't necessarily need to um, address in face-to-face -face, um, therapy. 
I think one of the biggest comorbidities that comes up for GPs in particular is chronic pain, people with psychological distress and chronic pain. Um, and I think it's probably worth remembering if you're seeing somebody with complex psychological needs that there are two chronic pain management programs available, one from uh, CRUFAD, this way up, it's called Reboot, and another one from the Mindspot Clinic at Macquarie University. Um, Reboot costs $60 and requires a referral from the, the uh, health practitioner. Mindspot does, doesn't is free and doesn't require a referral, but it requires the patient actually talks to somebody at the Mindspot Clinic who guides them through the program and um, helps them with any technical difficulties or other difficulties they might have. So if you can help them address their chronic pain in that way, it might give you more room to move as far as helping them deal with their depression or their anxiety or whatever else it is you're dealing with. I hope there's a list of all these apps because oh, I haven't been able to write anything down. Which leads me to the <laughs> table down the back. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> there is a uh, resource booklet from awesome. the MPRAC people. There are a number of resources down there which you can also access from us or from the MPRAC site, QUT's MPRAC site. And it's kept really well up to date, so mm. it's very useful. Uh, for a lot of clients that I see, they don't come specifically for depression or anxiety or kind of diagnosis specific. Um, they'll come for like relationship issues or they're, you know, they're more kind of more personality driven. Um, do you have, like, can you recommend any apps that are kind of that way inclined that, because I can imagine like for someone who's specifically with depression, anxiety or, you know, or phobia, there are those out there, but for someone who kind of just wants something that manages symptoms, as, as you said, like something to help with weight lifts, because that's such a huge issue. I feel very unethical putting folks on wait lists, especially as a private practitioner. I'm very limited in how much support I can give during that time. There's that virtual hope box which helps people manage their symptoms of PTSD, that's something worth thinking about. Um, the American Department of Veterans Affairs has also uh, developed a, an app for people with PTSD that, that um, can be quite useful too, and I'm fluffing because I can't remember the name of it, but it's in the book. <laughs> can you remember the name of it, Carol? No, I can't. And it's been adapted by the Australian Department of Veterans Affairs to use, use with Australian veterans, so the language has been changed and so forth. The only problem with that with our patients is that they're not veterans on the whole. But if you can encourage them to use that to help with their symptom management and ignore the fact that it keeps referring to military service, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. then that can be quite a, a good way um, to use these things as well. And, and maybe from Amy as well, I think your favourite has been My Compass yeah. and Breathe, is that right? Definitely. Any others? Have there been clunky apps that you haven't particularly liked that you've tried out as well? Not to poo-poo them, but maybe some features that suggest these are not great apps. I, I can't remember the name of it, which maybe indicates that it wasn't that good, but I, um, I do remember using one. Um, part, of, part of when I would experience anxiety would I have a few issues around like restricting what I wanted to eat, and that was a symptom that um, I, I went online to try and find something specifically for sort of eating disorders, and I remember using one that was very clunky in the sense that you had to select like how are you feeling today and the list was like 
10 things long and like it didn't at all, I couldn't relate to any of the emotions that it had on there at all. And it was just really sort of awkward and didn't give you that flexibility to choose, to be able to choose how you felt and interact with it easily. So I didn't use it for very long. The but. important app in eating disorders mm. is called recovery record. Right. Well, that wasn't it, was it? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, a comprehensive app developed, okay. in fact, by an Australian yeah. but marketed in the States, which helps people keep track of their, their mental health issues as well as their diet and exercise and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Is, is Australia a bit of a world leader? In Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, because you, you're naming so many of these things. Well, it, of course, that, it's, that's not helped by the fact that the MPRAC project actually um, is designed to support Australians developed uh, online resources but Australia is a world leader in the development of online treatment programs. Um, it, Mood Gym, which we haven't mentioned thus far, has been around since 2001. It was launched in 2001. It's been used all over the world in all sorts of research. It was developed actually to help um, build resilience in teenagers and it was shown to work quite well, particularly with teenage boys more so than teenage girls. But it's been used in all sorts of situations since 2001, as you can imagine, in, in research environments and real environments. The best story about Mood Gym is the medical student who told one of my, my um, colleagues that had she not been forced to do mood gym when she was in year 11, she didn't think she would have got through the HSC, let alone medicine, because she learnt skills from that that she hadn't had the opportunity to learn elsewhere. So, Do we have one final question from the audience before we move on? So you mentioned earlier about um, bedroom developers, I think was the description. Um, so there's a lot of apps out there thousands of them now. The NHS in the UK has a, is growing a directory of them. Um, but how does academia and research groups like this keep up with the amount of apps that are going out there that are more people that are, well, perhaps not make, want to make a profit initially, but it is a business um, eventually. And yeah. It's really hard for anybody to keep mental keep track of mental health apps because there are, are really thousands of them and they come and go at a great rate. On average, they last about three months in the app store um, because the uptake is so poor. And probably the competition means that none of them make a profit. So, but as I said before, there are ways of assessing apps and I, I would recommend that you go and look at the, the two webinars that I mentioned because Mark Larson, who helped me on the first one, is an absolute expert in the area. He's Scottish, but you never mind his accent. <laughs> He's very sweet uh, and very, very expert in the area. And that team from Queensland University of Technology that did the second webinar are really erudite when it comes to assessing apps. But it's important, amongst other things, to find out whether they come from a reputable organisation and what their funding is. Um, and so, so there are lots of lots of clues to working out whether an app's a good app or not. And if you happen to be a, planning to develop an app, maybe it's a good idea to look at that too, <laughs> because this is what the practitioners are looking at in order to assess 
the value of apps. You know, there's some horror stories about apps, uh, not least of which a researcher here at Black Dog did some research a few years ago on bipolar apps and found that only seven or eight of them had any evidence to support their use, even though there were 80 or 90 available from the app store. One of the ones that had a research base said that the thing to do if you were feeling a bit manic was to drink a few alcoholic beverages. And, <laughs> and another one said that bipolar disorder was catching. Contagious. So, so, so you know, you got to... Sometimes a, an app will be overall pretty good, but unless you know what the content is, you don't know where those little glitches are. So it's well worth either using one of those databases like the Reach Out site to select apps that you're going to have a look at for yourself or certainly having a close look at them. So as we're ending this particular um, podcast, I wanted to ask the, audience, uh, the panel, uh, what do you think are some of the upcoming advances in technology or things that you're looking forward to in the future? What would you like to see? We might start with Amy. Um, I, I think uh, being able to sort of gamify online platforms to make them even more engaging um, for people who are accessing mental health treatment um, whether that's through VR or AR, um, I think that would be a really cool... I don't know what that looks like, but I think that would be a really interesting way of getting people help that they need whether they might not otherwise access it. How about you, Z? What would you like to see in the future for digital technology? A couple of things. I'd like to... I like experienced clinicians to get trained and comfortable with online technologies because the, the trend is moving into that direction. And so I, I, um, I really do believe that we owe it to clients to, to get comfortable, especially our existing clients who may move to other places so that we can provide the continuity of care. Um, the second thing I'd like to see is... Um, some way as an international body that regulates online therapists and registration of some sort. This is such a big debate and big discussion, um, and it's a bit of like it's a wild, wild west out there um, for those who are uh, who are qualified in their own countries and not. So some you know some international body that looks at some regulations and guidelines um, and provide ways for consumers to be able to assess who is actually registered and who's not, what are people skilled in and what they're not. That would be fantastic. How about you, Jill? What would you like to see in the future? Uh, there's a few things. I think the first thing is working together with consumers to make sure that we are developing um, and evaluating what they want to use. Um, the second thing is using all those cool new technologies that are used in gaming um, to be able to um, improve how engaging, just like Amy said, how engaging these programs are and the way that we're able to, to help people improve their mental health. And then the third thing I think is using um, more informative algorithms to be able to help a person um, where they're at, at the time they're at, to deliver what they need. Um, so that's really tailoring and individualising the therapies that we have or the programs or skills that we have at the right time in the right place for that person. Um, and that can be really useful for things like predicting relapse um, and intervening before things get worse um, and also intervening early. And on that subject, that's one of the things that a big amount of work is going on around in the Australian context. That's 
personalising online programs. Uh, I guess it's something to do with AI. That, uh, <laughs> so, so programs will become more specific to the user over time. But look, I need to look less into the distant future and more into the near future, like, like next year, for example. And what I'd really like to see is practitioners feeling more comfortable in order to, to recommend these things and manage the patients while they're using them and not to, not to feel threatened by the online environment. And, and to ask the really big questions, I think, for clinicians and practitioners, do you think one day they'll do away with us? We'll just have VMAX? No, see, that's the problem. Yeah. That's what that, that I is would the like fear you to answer that, that's yeah. stopping people from yeah. using them. The answer is no, we can never do without face-to-face -face therapy. I think that would be a crime to suggest that, that that might be possible because people need another person to talk to. We all know it's all in the relationship, but that relationship is sometimes lacking certain skills or time or there are deficiencies in any one-to-one -one relationship with a therapist that perhaps the online environment can make up for. I absolutely agree. I think there's just so much work. Unfortunately, the well of unwellness is just... It's, it just continues. So I think any way that we can support clients at various stages and provide multiple entry points is fantastic. Well, at that point, we want to say thank you to our amazing panellists for tonight. So thank you very much to Jill, Jan, Z and Amy tonight for your contribution to this discussion. And thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.